Bye. Short Bus Debate Club. It's a bus. Rolling. get on board. <laughs> Hello, I'm Darren Jolly. <laughs> it's time to get this short bus started. So let's roll and on with the show. Hello and welcome to Short Bus Debate Club. I know it's been a little while since we've spoken to you. Um, I'm Brian Courtney. Speak. Yeah, you, in you, case you interact with us. You didn't remember I'm Brian Courtney. That's Darren Jolly. I was stepping on some words there. Sorry. That's okay. I was apologizing to them, not to you. Oh. <laughs> um, so we, in the next two hours, are going to talk about the war on drugs. And, you know, we've talked about how all of these things kind of interconnect some more than others, um, but we'll talk about how the war on drugs definitely connects to the prison industrial complex, which we talked about last week or 10 days ago, whatever it was. Um, Shit, it was about two weeks ago, I think. Close. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to talk about gangs next week, which again, you know, kind of interweave. Um, but... Yeah, that's that's going to be the the hoot of an episode that we have or episodes that we have for you tonight and tomorrow. Um anything you want to start with? No, I mean just to reiterate the so like one of the things that we're trying to highlight and make sure that um that we're focusing in on was that in 1971, when uh, um, Nixon uh, became president, there was a paradigm shift in the way that uh, drug policy was constructed and executed from the executive position in the United States. Uh, it went from something that where there were there were somewhat strong uh, legal environments. Um, surrounding it, and there were some things in the past, like the Boggs Act in 1952, that created some heavy-duty consequences about uh, as it related to drugs. But uh, it wasn't so systematically defined and and constructed to where it seemed like there was a certain kind of logic uh, that uh, did not that was connected to. Uh, the concept of making drugs illegal, but probably not connected to getting er, eradicating society of the existence of drugs. Like they were the, the, the intention of the war on drugs was never to get drugs out of the United States entirely. And that's, that's a complicated statement. Um, but uh, um, there's a lot of money that's involved in the way this shakes out. Like, like Brian said, uh, we have to think about this in the context of uh, the political economy of prisons, um, the way the prisons and it, it's not like in 1971 there were these uh, mustache twisting, you know, men smoking cigars in back rooms. There were some strategies that were being employed, but it wasn't like uh, it was holistic. There were a lot of different interests that were sort of vying for positions uh, as this sort of started to develop and evolve over the course of the next uh, until 94 with the 
Well, but in the in the mid seventies, I mean, that was when the CIA started moving drugs around back and forth, you know, from the United States, and then guns down to South America and, when I and say, whatever. When I say paradigm shift, and that's why I say that. I mean, like, that's why I say it's not just strictly one dimensional. Right. Like, there's a lot of different moving pieces to this. Yes, the CIA they had their their hands in what it was that was happening. And that's that's what I can't figure out, and I don't know quite how to maneuver it or or even try to explain it because obviously there's a lot of money to be made both legally and illegally. Now, if we move everything to the legal side of the board, there's a lot of money there, but are the congressional oversight committees going to let them just fucking take $2 billion in order to run some sort of black bag operation in Antarctica. And obviously <laughs> there's no black bag operations in Antarctica. The price was obviously material though. I mean, yeah. Um, you know, so. Cause I mean, the money would be there and they could call it any fucking thing they wanted on the budget line. That's what we have to just kind of like, like, so we, we, we see that there's the policy shift, right? Um, and the policy shift, like, that's why when you see all the different people's like drugs were a big question mark in 1971. Like you had a bunch of fucking hippies that were going around smoking weed and fucking tripping acid. And, you know, some of them were handling it pretty good. And a lot of them were, some of them were dropping out of society, like following fucking like the dead or like going and hanging out at fucking, you know, weird off the uh, grid sort of like spaces that developed into stuff like the rainbow gathering later on and all that kind of shit. And just communes mm -hmm. up in Oregon and Washington and but whatever the, there were, but that, I mean, so that's like one, one aspect of it. I mean, but you had fucking Mormons and Catholics and Christians and these people were not going to respond very favorably to drugs. So you like, that's why like there's, there's a push to, to make it illegal on behalf of that designation. You have these other people that are embedded in a drug culture on the other side of it. And then you have all the various different things that are sort of like happening in between that. Not that that represents the spectrum because I don't like necessarily think about things in terms of spectrums, but at least there's two polar positions there that could help the frame. Well, one of the arguments that I've heard, I don't know if it's correct or, or incorrect um, because you know, I don't have the data and they don't show you that kind of shit. <clears throat> but, you know, it wasn't until white people started using heroin and coke that everybody fucking freaked out. It became a problem. Yeah. Um, I would say that there's some credence in, in that entire argument. Um but, you know, again, I mean, again, with, depending on whichever path you follow, because with the CIA doing all of the coke shit that they were doing, then by proxy, the CIA did end up flooding the streets of Los Angeles with crack cocaine. They didn't, it wasn't crack cocaine when they delivered it, but those people running the the gangs in that area realized that they could increase profitability by tenfold by 
you know, rocking it up and selling it that way. What was it? What was his name? Rick Ross? What was it? Highway or... You're talking about the Crip guy? The guy that was the one that was helping, that was facilitating, like, when it really exploded in South Central and, and in the in that sort of, like, surrounding area. What did they yeah, because that was, like, 82, 83, right around then. What, that's was, his, when... what was the dumb motherfucker's nickname? Something Rick Ross. I don't know. We were talking about that the other day, and I thought you were talking about the rapper, dude. Yeah, I can't. I'll come up with him. Just carry, carry on. Um. So, again, the the drugs ended up taking lots of different paths into the United States, and the money took a lot of paths into different pockets and different slush funds, and you know, different organizations to finance this and that and, and Free, whatever. Freeway Rick Ross was his name. Okay. Sorry. No, that's fine. Because he was an integral part integral part of that space where the crack epidemic occurs, you know. I mean, it's funny, like, the question that you initially asked, though, is so much about optics, you know. Like, I was listening to this, uh, this funny-ass uh, podcast the other day, where uh, um, Brianna Joy Gray was talking to uh, this this guy's a big free speech guy. I can't remember his fucking name. I'll find it. There it is. Uh, Norm Norm Finkelstein. Like he's been blackballed by tons of people because he's critical of Israel about a number of different things. And he's a Jewish guy who's critical of Israel, and he just talks about free speech like all over the place. But uh, he was. They were talking like Bernie Sanders comes up in the middle of it, and uh, Brianna Joy Gray was giving him shit given Bernie shit and she she was his press secretary during the 2020 um election campaign and uh she was trying to communicate with him while she was in that position that he needed to learn how to talk to black people a little bit differently and uh like uh he tried to adjust some of his commentary to black populations in the middle of the uh the 2020 process and uh, ultimately he opened his mouth and stuck his foot in and the wokies all just slammed the fucking shit out of him you know and of course like the the democratic party was integral in making sure to to make that amplified because they wanted to make bernie look as bad as they possibly could because they didn't you know all the economic things that he was pushing for that they were not in favor of right um but Norm uh, was talking about he says he says he says well he says he says I he says he was probably you know he he tried to do it and then he fucked up and he probably got scared at that point in time so he sort of retreated back into his normal way of doing things and which is a weakness of course and he had, and he identified this clearly so he says he says well uh, you have to know Bernie and I we graduated the same year from the same high school in in New York. Um, so we grew up together as friends and he said we were both political activists almost immediately but we were people fighting on behalf of black issues without ever having met a black person in our life you know so um that framing you know sometimes you know the rhetorical bullshit that comes out in the wokies today uh, they talk so much shit about the way that things went down but you can't you can't change history the way that history functions is the way that history functions so like when I think about that, I think about the drug developments in the same same sort of context. Like the vast majority of white people just did not go into, you know, I mean, black neighborhoods. There wasn't know? a lot of cross pollinization. Yeah. So in 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 those moments, like 
the spaces where white people were actually, and I know, like, I know somebody who's got hepatitis from shooting heroin in the early 70s that's still alive today, you know, uh, needs a liver transplant, obviously, you know, but uh, there were a lot of people that were white people that were doing it, but they were doing it in, you know, close quarter sections of, you know, like he was living in New York at that moment, like in, I don't know if it was in Manhattan proper, but it was in one of the boroughs, you know, and in a very like heavily drug cultured, you know, the people that were the hippies that were doing the acid and, you know, the psychedelics and the, the smoke and the, the reefer, they had the reefer madness, you know, and, uh, but then they sort of graduated to other things, you know, which is not, you know, I, I don't want to go down the, the rhetorical bullshit discussions about gateway concepts, but sometimes people graduate from one space to another. But you're definitely right about the fact that like shit doesn't get on people's uh, radar, especially in white communities. You know, we're all narcissists. We're subjects. You know, from from the beginning, all of us are. You know, um, until we get to the point where some, our next door neighbor dies of a crack overdose or something like that. You know, then all of a sudden people were like. Well, it's it's just hysterical to me. I mean, because, and this had to have been around the same time, so maybe it just wasn't what was affecting white people, or maybe it wasn't that they thought black people were selling it to white people. But, I mean, back in the 70s, and maybe the 60s, but the bikers controlled crank, which is essentially... Meth. Yeah, meth, yeah. Meth, the first iterations of meth, yeah. And they were selling crank and speed and, and probably coke. I I don't know, but I know that if you talk about bikers selling whatever, crank is usually right up there. And then, like I was telling you in that study, like white people under the mandatory sensing laws mm -hmm. generally were in there for meth. Mm -hmm. Black people were there for crack. Um, it was just weird the way that that worked, but what was the, what was the time period when you were looking at those? So you said 2016. So the, right? the study was from 2017, 2017 okay. and they were looking back from 1993 to 2016. So, um, but it's, it's just funny that the way that those numbers work and we, I mean, it happened with music too. As soon as white kids started listening to fucking NWA, then everybody was like, oh my God, this shit is horrible. What are they doing? Um, yeah, I was in fourth grade. And that's when it happened with weird shit like Twisted Sister and stuff too. So it wasn't just rap, but. Dee Snyder, he was really quite eloquent about that stuff. He was smart, dude. So before we get too far ahead of ourselves though, like, so. The constant, like by those point, by that point in time, like the rhetorical disposition, particularly underneath like Reagan, you know, and with Nancy getting up there saying, uh, you dare. know, dare, yeah, dare, dare to keep kids off of rugs, you know, <laughs> but like that was the big thing. I mean, I, I, in 1980, I, I started kindergarten, right? So, like, I was hearing that rhetorical bullshit. They were giving out the dare pins like the second that I was in elementary school, but. By that point in time, the concept of drugs as an epidemic, you know, had firmly sort of embedded itself in the psyche of the U.S. Uh, population. Like our, our 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 consciousness was under this assumption, you know, that 
there were these people that were, you know, that needed to be fixed or sent to prison or whatever. So, but, like, but that didn't just happen, like, like in 1937, right, there's like this thing called the Marijuana Tax Act, right? That was like the first time that they ever like made an attempt at criminalization of weed, I think, if I if I understand correctly, you know? What year? 1937, I think is what it was. Well, because the fucking um, Reefer Madness came out in like 28, 29, and everybody started freaking out. And that one definitely was about black people somehow infiltrating white people with jazz music and reefer and all of their bad bad ways um which is total fucking horseshit but you know what whatever i mean people have these fears justified or not and that's i i would hope that's what we're trying to do is alleviate some of these fears and make them realize that They've been lying to you for hundreds and hundreds of years, but on drugs for a hundred years. Yeah, it's been it's been it's been pretty pretty pronounced. So, um, but it was it was thirty seven from the marijuana tax act, but like things hadn't developed to where there was like an aggressive drug policy. Like in nineteen fifty two, there was this thing called the Boggs Act, right? And that was the first time that we had mandatory minimum sentences, right? It was they were giving them. Uh, for drug convictions for for like a joint sometimes two to five years like it's fucking brutal yeah and uh, a lot of the populations that were being attacked at that point in time were actually um latino like and it was guys who was you know and it, marijuana was like put in as within with an h at that point in time they it was it was like funny like there's they still spell it that way in most of the criminal code yeah, which is so fucking weird dude. but like um but again, like not then not not again until uh, 1965, where there was this uh, thing that was called the war on uh, crime that was created, and this idea called the law enforcement. Make sure that there were two two laws that came out. I don't want to get. Yeah, okay, that's the first one, the war on crime. So this is like the 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 precursor to the war on drugs. Um, as as an as an attack on crime and this idea uh, the law enforcement assistance act which was a part of that um, it authorized the federal government to take a direct role in militarizing local police so like there's a coordination between military and, and the police at that point in time so and it was formal the way that, that was being uh, developed right so then in 1968 there was a thing called the safe streets act right and they invested $400 million in the war on crime. So this was money that was directly connected to that initial activity where they were putting money toward it, towards it. And it created this thing called the Law, Enforce, and Law Enforcement uh, Assistance Administration to oversee uh, the, the way that the funding would be doled out all over the place. And uh, the primary focus of this at that point in time was to supervise and surveil low communities and that was primarily black communities or brown communities but there were if you were in a poor community that was where they essentially started to it uh, to 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 go to go to town right so and at that point in time there was when we were talking about before that that moynihan report came out that uh basically uh, suggested that there was a link between 
black crime and the uh, the failure of black families to stay together. And it was just it, like a just a horrible bullshit like sociological fucking like if somebody would have put a gun in that guy's mouth before he wrote that paper and he blew his head off the world might be a little bit better if it, if it weren't for that but it really really created some like horrible rhetorical dispositions with regards to uh, stigmatizing and stereotyping black populations that allowed for like the the emergence of like the the war on drugs to come and affect that one specifically when i was when i was looking at this another thing that kind of popped out at that point in time was the fact that the black black panther party sort of was emerging as a way of like coordinating activity inside of um black communities because they knew that as this acted from 65 and the one that came out in 68 uh that these uh that the police were being activated against these poor communities that they were essentially coming in and like again like they, the the police have been militarized they're coming in and they're fucking harassing these people in that space so they said if you come in here then we're going to defend ourselves right and all of the things that developed out of that and boom uh three years later uh, the war on drugs so i mean i think that those are some of the things that when like i'm trying to see like the framework for what uh and obviously like I, I i didn't talk about the i mean i talked about the hippie culture before that but like and the point that you said about when it starts to hit white populations in the united states for better or for worse there are demands for policy developments at that point in time people you know yeah and i i mean i still don't get it i i don't think i understand people as a whole for the most part but i mean Dude, and I I loved what the Black Panthers were doing, and they're mostly just feeding kids in the morning, you know, feeding them and educating yeah. them. I Talking mean, they them. were sending them to school, yeah. and you know, making sure that they, they knew that. how to read and write yeah. and and do all of that stuff. Um, and like you say, feeding them because if you're fucking hungry, you're really more worried that. about your fucking stomach than you are what some dipshit at the front of the class is saying. And, you know, they managed to fucking incarcerate all of the leaders or, or kill, kill them or both. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, we've got a problem. And I think it's funny because at least two of the people I can think of that were directly involved with weed and or coke um i can't remember the one dude's name but he uh had an hbo documentary just within the last couple of years um because he started smoking weed because it made him feel better and then he started smuggling it because he could make money and then somebody said hey you know why don't you do this and that um but then there was a kid in new york i think he went to fucking nyu and then just one weekend, he decides to fly down to Columbia and buy a kilo of Coke. And at the time, they didn't check every bag that was coming through. So he goes and buys a kilo, comes back. He's real popular at NYU, goes back down, buys a couple more, comes back up. You know, so they are basically targeting all of these black people but black people don't have the money to buy a fucking plane ticket Howard to Marks, columbia is that one of them no not Howard Marks. that might have been the pilot guy 
that I'm thinking of. Did I don't know. Um, there were so many of them, and there were so many of them that the CIA ended up tapping because they had a pilot's license and they had the ability to do this stuff. But the one guy, it was a three-part documentary on HBO, and he said that he fucking met Ronald Reagan. Um, and then, of course, Ronald Reagan denied everything and not the meeting, the pilot part, but everything, period. I didn't know that they were doing that. I didn't know that they were doing that. Um, you need to talk to Oliver North. Um, that's the one. It is the documentary that I'm thinking by of. By Adam McKay. I generally like the things that Adam McKay makes. Yeah, he's... he's. Uh, but I can't find the guy's fucking name. Gary Betzner? Gary right. Betzner, yeah. Yeah, so that was a good show. Um, he met again, fucking Ronald Reagan. Why would Ronald Reagan meet a fucking weed smuggler? Well, because at the time, he wasn't a weed smuggler. He started smuggling weed, um, and it was just like up in Alaska. But then, well, actually, so no, I got that wrong. First, he was smuggling booze around these towns in Alaska. But he was using weed, and then he started smuggling weed. And he was making good money doing that. So he started coming down to the lower 48. And somehow he got involved in coke. Because again, that made him feel better. I guess he was, he had a lot of ailments. <laughs> and so. I'm not feeling very well. Cocaine makes me feel he better. He started using cocaine. And his wife was a fucking riot. Because she said they were fucking lying to us all this time. They were saying that weed does this, and it does this, and then they said Coke does this, and it could that. And they're just fucking lying to us. <laughs> um, but he ended up, you know, spending time in jail. But he said he met Reagan because he ended up being part of the group that was running guns and Coke. and. So he was part, like the Noriega, like Manuel Noriega. And all yeah. That shit, like out of Panama and... When Bush was, after Bush was the head of the CIA, because Bush was the vice president by that point, at that point, but so when you're the former head of the CIA and you graduate straight to the vice presidency, you, you probably are still doing CIA activities while you're the vice president. All right, so I, I want to kind of take a slight turn, um, because obviously at a federal level, all drugs are illegal. I mean, precursors or variants of like MDMA or something that somebody made up in their basement, they're not necessarily illegal. Um, you can buy them in a gas station, but they might get you high. They might make you fucking freak out. They might make you die. You just never know. Um, Those are the kind of drugs people should really want to do. The ones that you just don't know. That's right. <laughs> Bath salts, baby. Um, make me want to eat people. So marijuana is legal for recreational and or medical in all but 12 states. And like two of those, no, I'm sorry, no, 12 there's nothing on the books, but out of the other 38, I think three of them have proposed bills up 
to either do medical and or recreational. Even you, even the fucking Mormons have medical now, dude. Yeah, I mean, if the Mormons have it, everybody should have it. I again, I think everybody should just have it. Now, here's the thing. So this legalization thing for the consumer, it is fucking solid, right? Like here in Colorado, I can walk down the street and I can go in and I can say, I want an ounce of fucking weed. And they say, well, what kind of weed? And I say, I don't know. Give me atomic, blow me purple kush. And they say, great. And they give me an ounce. Tell me how much it is. I pay them. Walk out the door. They say, Atomic, blow me purple kush. That's my favorite kind. <laughs> and by the way, I don't even know if that's a fucking real strain. I know kush is part of it, and Atomic is probably part of it. Purple probably even. But the blow, blow me, me part, I mean. Maybe made. not so much. Um, so it's great for the consumer. Depending on where you set your shit up, it might be really fucking good for the business with a couple of little caveats. So you just can't wait to get to this point, huh? Which the Aurora point. Well, it's not just Aurora. So in California, um, one of the documentaries that I just recently watched, it was called the, the business of drugs. And in the marijuana episode, they talked about... That was on Netflix, right? And they yeah. did it by, by drug family. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so in the marijuana episode, they talked about Humboldt County again. And I had seen another documentary called Murder Mountain, which also discussed Humboldt County. Um, and California did something similar to what Colorado did. As far as the medical part goes, they did it first, but, you know, it was medical and then recreational followed up. Well, Humboldt County was known for growing weed, and they had been doing it for who knows how long, since the 60s, 50s maybe. I don't fucking know, but it was all illegal. It's 420, baby. Isn't that where it came from? It was from Humboldt County? That there was like some sort of a statute or something? I don't know. I've heard some rule about the, or some myth about the statute. And then I've heard part of it had to do with students meeting outside of Berkeley by a statue at 420. Um, so I don't know. I don't know about the 420 thing. Um <laughs> But Darren's looking it up right now. So we're going to, you know, kick you down some more knowledge. Um, Humboldt County for years grew illegally. Um, the medical part comes in and then recreational follows up very soon. Well, all of these small family farms that were growing illegally decided they wanted to be part of the legal process. Well, lots of them ended up losing their land because the fucking between 
the the city and county and state and all of the license fees and startup fees and all of this other bullshit a lot of them were losing their fucking farms or or about to so they started selling illegally again i mean admittedly on tv of course their shit was blurred and they were wearing sunglasses and they changed their voice and whatever but they said you know i couldn't do it legally they wouldn't let me do it and lots of them speculated that with the amount of land up there and the fact that the soil was really good for growing weed that they were setting it up to where all of these because i mean in the 90s you know philip morris and and all of the big tobacco companies had already purchased land supposedly for growing weed because they were trying to, yeah to get um, according to the documentary, it wasn't just the tobacco companies, but a lot of the beer companies are planning on getting into the weed business. And then, of course, you've got the pharmaceutical companies. So it's a lot of mouth to feed there. It's being set up to where all of these guys can just come in and spend the two and a half million dollars or six million dollars or whatever it is depending on how many plants you're growing and what your license is for and everything else and they don't have to worry about the recoup right away because they have a fucking bank account you know that's huge i'm just gonna push pause here for just a second i'm not i'm not finding the code quite yet but i just had to bring this up so i was trying to find it and it says uh this is not an official HTT response status code. Twitter responds with 420 with a 420 request if you make too many requests in a period of time. And this is called an enhance your calm code. <laughs> so they make a fucking reference to demolition, man. That's the only reason why. Enhance your calm. Um so, but California is not the only one doing it. And Again, in California, it depends on what city, county, and and part of the state you're in. Because one of the cities down in the southern, I guess, southeastern part, which is basically a fucking desert, um, because they're an hour away from L.A., they're an hour and a half away from Las Vegas, and they've got all of these railroad spurs coming into this town because it used to be a fucking military base. Well, they've been suffering for so fucking long because they had no income, tax or otherwise. So they said, fuck it. We're going to give these guys incentives. So now they've got warehouses and warehouses and warehouses that are just grow houses. And then they've got some that are warehouses where they're like labs and they're doing fucking waxes and vapes and all of that other shit so again it depends on what city and all of that stuff you're in as to how much your licenses are going to be but it doesn't matter where you are it's not going to be cheap like i looked at the state of colorado and your startup costs just for state license fees are going to be, and this is if you're like a small shop, you're looking at at least 
twenty thousand dollars. It's not. It's not a reference to uh, any statutes. It's a. It's an urban myth. It, it says. It's. Well, I always think it's funny when I find these stupid sites that they say it was an urban myth in this context. It was an urban myth in this context. And then it says so. What's the truth? And it says so. Actually, 420 came into being in 1971 at San Rafael High School in Northern California. How much fucking bullshit is that, dude? Like, like how, like how can you prove? That's like the stupidest right. fucking. Like you're sitting there trying to debunk an urban myth, and then you just give another one. So there, it, there was a California Senate Bill 420 that was introducing uh, medical marijuana in '96. And uh, on the 116th Congress, uh, the, Ma the Marijuana Revenue and Regulation Act was a move to uh, uh, remove it from uh, the controlled substance and establish requirements for taxation regulation of marijuana products. So uh, they're using it now in statutory language as maybe an homage. I mean, yeah. but, uh, it never did have anything well, to do with anything in the past. Like I said, and who knows, because I was talking to a stoner, so maybe they confused the word statute with the word statue. But somebody at some point in my life told me that it had something to do with the statue and the kids from school were meeting at the statue to smoke weed. Well, that's, I mean, that's the suggestion of the, you know, that they were saying with those kids at that high school. Right. No matter what, it was, it was code. I mean, and it was code that eventually caught on, right? So it's no longer code. It's code that's no longer code. Yeah, that's horse shit. Um, but I do want to let you know that I did check property values up in Humboldt County. Yeah. Uh -huh. And you can buy a lot of fucking land for a pretty fucking good deal in California. So apparently the pharmaceutical companies and whoever haven't gone through and just bought huge well, swaths of land. It's different now, right? I mean, because Humboldt, that's not the only place where you can do this now. You can do it in your own, you know? And I mean, ultimately, if there's one thing that we know about, uh, you know, cigarette companies, for instance, right? They've got a pretty strong lobby, you know? The ways in which marijuana has been has maintained its continual criminalization is a demonstration of the strength of that lobby in the same way that it's a demonstration of the strength of the alcohol lobby or of the pharmaceutical lobby right so i mean uh the point that you're sort of pointing to like at least sort of like getting getting towards is as a new business like if a person like if say i was growing weed for all of my life, I'd grow two plants at a time, and I'd do it real quietly so nobody had ever known it. So I got really fucking good at it. Like, I had the science down. I could fucking clone shit. I could fucking splice fucking, you know, different strains together. And I just continued to make better and better, better weed. I was the master of the weed universe. But I only ever grew two plants. Now, everything becomes legal. I don't got fucking... I don't got... I'm not even in the right place to have $20,000 to fucking be able to do it. Right. And despite the fact that I have this incredible amount of expertise, the only way that I could even make money is to just go be a fucking, you know, a tender, like ultimately, and the people who own the means of production. I mean, again, this is just Marxism at work, right? Despite the fact that I am an incredible worker who produces wonderful marijuana, I do not own the means of production. Therefore, I am going to be exploited, and the value that comes out of the weed that I develop is going to be extracted and somebody else is going to make the surplus of that. 
Absolutely, and and that's what they were saying, is we're losing this because they're building it for Big Pharma. Mm -hmm. Now, my guess is, because Big Pharma already has indoor grows. I mean, at least if you believe the movie Half-Baked. Um, but... <laughs> I, I, I'm sure they already have indoor grows, but I do not believe the movie happened. Right. I, I get you. I love, I love Dave Chappelle, though. Um, but if that's that city in... Have you ever looked at a $20 bill? Have you ever looked at a $20 bill on weed? <laughs> Thank you, John Stewart. That city in Southeast California, you know, I think they did. And, that, and now they say their economy is booming. They created over a thousand jobs. You know, new companies are coming in that are not weed related, you know, because now people need restaurants. I'm sure pretty soon a prison will be built because they need prisons. Um, <laughs> Just to make sure that we're continuing to tie all these things <laughs> back together. <laughs> They're doing it the right way. And I'm sure if you look at all of the states that have legalized weed, there are going to be some poorer, poorer jurisdictions that could do something similar where they give these tax incentives because they've got fucking industrial, you know, warehouses for blocks and blocks and blocks that are just sitting there empty. Um, fuck, here in Colorado, and I don't know, but I, I'm guessing you could do something like that down in Pueblo. Or any of the places in eastern Colorado. Or Detroit, you know. Right. Or, or Flint. Flint, yeah. Or anywhere else where you have these giant industrial areas that have been. But, I mean, there's only so much weed you can grow. But no matter what, there it is space that could be utilized to other. Now, there was something that in, I, I was reading a while ago, and I need to do more uh, research into it. But the massive, the massive grow operations in Humboldt, are um, creating some pretty horrible uh, environmental uh, consequences. So one way or another, as we develop, I mean, the, the, the shittiest thing about this is that you have these moments where these new industries come into place. And because people that are having the $500,000 to invest in Aurora to start up their operation immediately or you know the ones that are in you know those parts of northern california that can do all the licensing that they need to do and the land and all the different things uh the hard goods you know that are necessary to grow it and blah 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 blah, blah. um their intention is just to make a ton of money like the consequences the long-term consequences of the environmental yeah it would it's all i just in my fantasy science fiction mind sometimes i just wish that when you created these new industries that we would do it in no. this sort of science because like i've been waiting funny thing is you know like i i haven't smoked weed regularly since like 1995 right but i've been waiting for weed to get fucking legalized since 1990 for all intents and purposes because i'm not a hypocrite and because i do believe that while weed is definitely addictive i don't care what anybody says it's not physically addictive but it's psychologically addictive you can get caught in certain mental cycles that it affects your memory and it becomes difficult to get out of those cycles. Some people are affected by that more than others. So I don't want to create this broad swooping. I am a very airy person. I can barely stay focused enough to talk to you guys and stay on topic most of the time. So you can only imagine what I sound like when I'm fucking smoking weed and I'm going tangent, 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 tangent. So uh, it just wasn't a good drug for me, but I have lots of friends that have been uh, functional stoners for all of their lives, you know, and, uh, 
some of it calms them down some of them it, you know it just functional is probably one of those like loosely used yeah, words yeah, yeah. i mean it's ambiguous enough that it yeah it can mean different yeah. things in different contexts you know like when we talk to our buddy dale when he gets lit you know and he's sort of floating around in the ether you know um dale has his 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 ways of uh, reproducing his existence you know through his records and through his glass blowing and all that kind of stuff but uh is dale hyper focused you know on whatever it is that he's thinking about or saying in that moment but it's not really easy for him to engage in other people's points sometimes right well and not just and him but just people in general i mean you know walking or or getting from point a to point b to me isn't necessarily functional i think it's great <laughs> that you can get to the fridge so that you can grab another beer but you know whatever um yeah functional is, is ambiguous at, at best but some people i know really operate at a pretty high level when they still smoke weed yes as long as they don't just fucking sit there and smoke indica until they're like uh, yeah smoking an ounce of indica every day is probably not going to be very good for your focus well so here's here's kind of the reason that i mentioned the legalization part okay um you you kind of touched on the 500,000 in Aurora um and that was just licensing and and expectations that you had to get and that you license said, but that was what you were not even allowed to enter the industry unless you showed that, that you, you had like, $500,000 yeah. in a bank account right boom um and that may have changed mm -hmm. i mean that was from 2018 and that was quoted from somebody else but it, on it, that it, documentary regardless of whether it's changed or not it it demonstrates a frame for sure yeah mm -hmm. um so here's another kind of fucked up part so if i run a gas station i can write off my employees i can write off the rent i can write off all of this shit if you run a weed store you can't write off one fucking thing and that's because it's not recognized as an actual business so the federal government gladly takes your fucking money because you're paying taxes on that shit but you're not getting a, a tax break not one you're not getting treated you're not getting treated in the same way that every other business would get treated because it's sanctioned by the federal government so that's why i was saying for the consumer it's absolutely fucking great we can just walk into the store buy some weed but for the store owner it may be good you might be making money hand over fist but you might not you might be getting fucked like the farmers in humboldt county or the small business owner at some fucking store competing with you know a basically 50 store operation um so it's it's not a level playing field and and i know in capitalism there aren't necessarily level playing fields um but i think the tax break thing it should be if business if you're identified as a functional business and and so but the problem with this is and this is an important like we're not just splitting hairs here decriminalization decriminalization would not fix this problem it needs to be regulated if it's regulated at that point in time again it's sanctioned it's recognized as a business by the federal government so that it's uh 
it's subject to all the same uh, penalties and privileges that, that businesses are, would have access to based on the way that they conduct their businesses. Yes. But it, decriminalization is going to leave it presumably in that same category. It, it would still not be legal in the eyes of the federal government. Therefore, it would continue to probably be not allowed to do, to, to, to take breaks for, uh, like you said, R&D, uh, breaks for um, uh, just costs Any of, of creating it. a brick and mortar position so that you can do your sales expanding outward hiring employees cost of electricity mileage yes everything that anything cost. yeah none of that stuff would be would be identified so until we get to a point where like uh these uh so weed specifically just first at the very at the very least right and that's why i wanted to say that because obviously you've heard me say it at least once i'm sure i've said it probably 25 times but I think they should all be legal. Based on one study in one of the uh, documentaries that I watched when I was doing studies for this, uh, 40,000 people are in prison for only marijuana-related activities. Yeah. 40,000 for nonviolent marijuana-related. There was one guy that I found. This, was, this might be one of the most fucked-up things that I've ever heard about a person in prison. This guy was put in prison because somebody got caught selling like 20 pounds of weed and they said that this guy who had formerly had an affiliation with the uh, gang that uh, this other individual was involved in he said this guy was a party to it so if you rolled over on somebody then it lessened your sentence right this guy was charged he was it was 30 it was 32 uh, mandatory, like he had to do 32, 32 years for conspiracy to uh, distribute marijuana, 20 pounds of marijuana. They went to his house. They raided his house. They found a roach in his house. All right. Didn't find anything. No guns. Him, nothing. Right. And, and no drugs, no weed, except for the roach to tie him to the activity that these people. So it was all conjecture. And they were able to convict him based on this circumstantial position in this state and i had never i had never heard and he's been in, he, like I, I i can't remember when the documentary was made but at the time of the documentary he had served 25 years in prison for it it is it is complete and total bullshit dude i mean and now they have all of this shit added on top of it like there's this fucking kingpin amendment where basically if they think that you are the leader of this organization, then it's an automatic life in jail or an automatic 25 to life. Um, you know, there's other they weird just, they, shit. They just have to think that you're the leader. Of I'm the guessing band. that they have to try to prove it, but I don't know what that proof boils down to. Cause like you said, one guy says he, he knew about it. They find a roach and all of a sudden he's in jail for 32 fucking years. And just as an ancillary point, the guy that rolled over on him is, was not in jail and has not been in jail for over 10 years. So, I mean, like the, the people that were committing the crime, the people that were still tied to these, these, you know, gangs to give you a foreshadow on next week. Right. They were still tied to these gang activities. Um, they knock somebody off, you know, they don't have any more to fuck you motherfuckers. I think if you make a choice to commit an act, then you, you suffer the consequences for them. And I think that's the way the life's supposed to be. And yeah. I, I don't do anything anymore, but I, I know that when I was young, 
when I made the choices that I made, which were crazy choices. You know, I never hold more than I never held more than a half pound of weed at any point in time because I didn't ever want to have a federal offense on me. Um, it, it was it was a, a, like a class five felony what I'd have on me. Um, but uh, I made sure my mom didn't know about anything that I was doing because I wanted to make sure that I was the only person that could be implicated for it. Uh, and despite the fact that um, people that I was involved in rolled over on me a number of times, you know, which was hilarious because the people that were rolling over on me were the people that were selling 100 pounds a month and putting the point the finger at me when I literally just would have like a half pound of weed that I'd sell like quarters or an ounce, you know, like nothing, you know, I mean, it's just fucking hilarious, you know, dude, it's, it, I, I don't, but think... I, t- I, t- I take responsibility. I, if I ever got busted, I would. I Absolutely. You gotta, yeah. there's, there should be honor in whatever vocation you pursue. Yeah. Um, but what, so the confidential informant thing is, is a crock of shit. Um, but again, I think a lot of it goes to that, that 1994 crime bill and being able to get more prosecutions and get longer sentences and make sure that they serve at least 85% of those sentences and, and whatever. So we're coming to the top of the hour. Um, we're definitely going to continue this conversation, but before we jump into that, I I just want to talk about one interview that I did. Um, and then we're going to continue the weed thing in the, the second half and get into some more of the other stuff. But, um, so about the, uh, the uh, parole officer. So, uh, well, I, I want to talk about the other one at the beginning of the next one. Okay. So the other one's really funny. a, A friend of a friend, um, told me about this guy he knew that is a parole officer for uh, the juvenile authority of one of the states where weed is legal. Um, And I'm not going to get any more specific than that because they said that they wanted to remain anonymous. Um, Yeah. But when I was talking to them, I assumed that they would want drugs to be legalized because I thought that they were being basically just overburdened because of all of the people in the prison system and and the parole system. Well, apparently on the juvenile side... That was an assumption you were making. Yes. That isn't the case. So I asked him the question, you know, would drugs being legal make your life different? And he said, no, not really. He said, if if I could, I would make weed illegal because it's fucking me up. And I said, well, how? And this I also did not expect. But he said... So basically, parole means you came out of jail, prison, and you've got to see this person however often. You know, the judge kind of decides that. The prison board kind of decides it. But 
you've got to go and see this person. Um, also on probation or parole, you are not supposed to drink. You are not supposed to use any illicit drugs, you know, other than like fucking ibuprofen or, or prescription medication. Um, so I said, how, how would it change it? And he said, well, since weed is legal, we have quit giving drug tests. We used to give them on the spot drug tests or go to their house and drug test them. But we've quit doing that because a lot of their parents smoke weed with them or they go and, you know, smoke weed with one of their friends that's over 21. They say that their parents smoke weed with them. That's what they said. I, I mean, that's what he told me they said. It doesn't surprise me. I mean, my mom used to drink with me. And I know one of my buddy's dads used to smoke weed with us, but I think as a general rule, even my friend's parents who smoked weed regularly back in the day did not ever participate in the only only peanuts dad. No, he was the only one that did. Well, that. maybe it was the kid going and stealing weed from his parents. Okay, that, I, I don't know. Weed is different than but he, saying he's that isn't, smoking weed with their parents. That isn't what he said, though. He said parents are smoking weed with, with their kids. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. But since this is occurring, mm -hmm. because they're in a state where drugs are legal, or marijuana spray, is legal, they've quit drug testing. Them. Yes. And I was like, well, why Why would you do that? And he said, because we know they're going to come back with a positive result. But they could still drug test them for other drugs. It doesn't matter. If, if you are on parole, you are not allowed to use any drugs. I understand what you're saying there, but they're, they're, I mean, they're, they can change that. That's something that they could, and they could address things differently than that. That's that's like a, if he, if that's really his, I understand it's what not you're saying. his, I, it's the policy. I understand, yeah. what, but what I'm saying, though, is that if there's a problem with it when it comes to weed, right, you don't just write off your concern for people doing fucking fentanyl when they're 15 years old, right? Like, abandoning drug testing of youth because they're going to test positive for weed is like throwing the bath out with the fucking, you know, well, the baby out with the bath. I'm out. not saying that it's right. I'm saying that that his is argument was, yes. one of the kinks that has been thrown in to weed being legalized, at least according to this person, right? So... Again, all drugs would be illegal if if he had, if he were king. It seems like an odd argument, though, just because it, you could deal with other other things still. Right. I, I I don't I don't get it. But there were some other things that I didn't get either, mm -hmm. which was, you know, they don't do that because they don't want to send people back. And he said that was strictly political because they don't want to make these kids look like they're recidivists. Because recidivism makes them look like they're failing at their job. Correct. Which is weird because when they're adults, the 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 revolving door is almost like after at least of what we talked about, if, if anything that we said a couple of weeks ago is true, then 
they want the the revolving doors is 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 they structured. Want, they want it to be there, but they don't want the numbers to show that it's there. I think that's the difference. Um, but so, and another thing that he told me, which doesn't have anything to do with the fucking weird legal illegal drugs we thing. Recidivism, but we don't want it to look like. Well, yeah, they don't even pull the numbers for a full year after the kid is released because if they do get popped and jump back in, they don't want it to show up as a recidivism. <laughs> so we, 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 want, we want our analytic disposition to be false. So we're going to create a, 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 a way that doesn't reflect the real reality on the ground. Right. So I'm just wondering, like, is it false data point after false data point <laughs> after false data point? I mean, you know, I'm... Do you, do you understand what he just said? Okay, just, just to be clear, right? He said... That if something happens when a person, when a kid gets released, this is what you're saying. Over the course of the next year, that's not included in 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 the the data. The recidivism goal. numbers, yeah. right? And yes. So, uh, if the revolving door, if they literally go out and come right back in within 365 days, it's not. Uh, it's like they never left them, basically. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't ever fucking show. So how? I mean. And this is one person I spoke to in one state that is is doing this. So if all of the jurisdictions are doing similar shit, then even though, I mean, because I'm a firm believer that if you show me the fucking numbers, I'm about, I don't know, 85, 90% that those numbers are solid, right? I'm, I'm a big believer in data. How it's all gathered. But do you really think that there's going to be an asterisk somewhere on those reports that say, oh, by the way, we didn't pull data for the first year after said prisoner is released. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's just, it's fucking weird. I mean, he said that he wants everything to stay criminalized then. Yeah. Um. That it makes his job easier so that he can give people drug tests normally. Well, is that really kind of how his argument went? Basically, I mean, that was the what he said was that he he wanted to be able to treat these people the way that they should be treated. And I'm not saying that he wanted to fucking, you know, beat them or anything, but based on the structure of the law though at that yeah. point in time. Because like you said, it, it requires that they that they treat a person who smokes weed the same as they treat someone who, who gets caught doing with a hot meth right uh, P test too. And so here's the the other thing that kind of pisses me off is that before if the parole officer did the piss test or blood test or whatever, whatever. test. Yeah, however, they did the yeah the drug test. Yeah. Then that was billed to that kid, that state, that budget line. Mm-hmm. Now, in order 
to test somebody, they've got to call in this third-party company, which that could be part of the whole political bullshit, too, uh -huh. is that now this third-party company has to come out, and they do the piss test, and so that piss test is billed to that kid and that jurisdiction to that budget line for that fucking third-party company. Uh -huh. um, so that's, again, that prison industrial complex, even though they're not a prison, yeah, yeah, yeah. they're billing corrections money. Um, I did some more research because I, I wanted to find out, and I asked him about the budget, and I said, you know, does since you're juvenile, does that come out of Department of Corrections? Where, where does your money come from? And there are several states where this juvenile authority isn't part of corrections, but they're part of like the health department or behavioral and health or whatever. So again, nothing is just, I mean, you've really got to kind of read between the lines to find certain things. And I know I've said that before too, but they don't make it easy to find the one thing that you're looking for, I guess. So, well, you know, cause you know, we're not going to measure for a year, you know? Yeah. Well, we'll just, you know, if that's just in the ether. Don't worry. It's not a big deal. Go ahead. Commit some crimes. Um, there's a chance we won't bust you back anyway. Cause we don't want to look like we didn't do our job. So we'll start out the second half with you talking about the, uh, inquiries that you made to, uh, the city and county of Denver was that was that yeah. okay so yeah okay. so I reached out to the police department actually I over time have tried to contact several officers individually and they all declined to comment um, because it made them uncomfortable I mean I could see the discomfort like they got kind of squirmy when I asked the question about how the war on drugs affects their day to day. So they kept referring me to the public information office at the Denver police department. So finally in the last week, beginning of this week, I contacted the public information office and it was the weekend. So dude's like, man, you know, I'm the only one here. Send me an email. I'll try to find out what I can do. Um, so I sent him an email and then I called and followed up again on Tuesday, I think. And he said, uh, Brian, I, I don't know if, if you're aware of this. We've got your request. We're working on it. But, you know, we had a shooting um, and then there was another shooting so they've kind of had their hands full. So I'm going to kind of, you know, give them a break and say that they're working on it. I hope that they're fucking working when on it. When called that time, they actually, without him saying too much, they referred to him by his first name immediately. <laughs> and what was it? The, it's the police, what is it, the public information or what is it called? Public information office. Okay. But those guys, I mean... It's it's a weird fucking relationship. I'm fairly sure that they tried to fucking 
investigate me for a murder because I tried to call and ask him about these tunnels that are under the, the city and county of Denver. And I was like, you know the tunnels where all those homeless people were killed? <laughs> and they're they like... They held them on the line. For yeah, the they're like, hold, to, hold on one second. So that they can get a call number and make sure that... The... Yeah. Why are you asking for that information again? Are, are you a terrorist? Are you trying to plant bombs throughout Denver? Underneath <laughs> uh, in this weird-ass infrastructure that has been made by... Uh, Hookers and, and coal, coal movers during the late 18 was it early 1900s? Or well, I think it was a combination of the both? two. Okay. I mean, because all of those whorehouses on what was it, Market Larimer, they had maybe not all of them, but the higher class ones had tunnels from Union Station to the whorehouse, and the idea was that these uppity up businessmen. Get off could train. get off on the train and go directly to the whorehouse without being noticed. Yeah, so, go, right. Just go straight to the whorehouse. So another thing that should be legalized, but whatever. Um, okay, so we'll catch on part two, and I'll talk about the the Denver Police Department and the questions we ask them, and and hopefully you know they'll come back and we can maybe talk about that during the gangs thing. Um, and then we'll talk about more about fucking Nixon and his formation of the fucking DEA and all of the horse shit that came to follow. Yeah, we should probably get into some of the specifics of what happened in the 70s at some point. Yeah, dude, I, I'm sorry. I I know, you are. just was trying to fucking guide it in a certain way because we're going to talk about how complicated legalization is going to be if everything were legalized right we got a lot of stuff to talk about i don't i don't i don't know we're gonna talk really fucking fast in this yeah all right so we'll catch you in the second half see ya oh 720-334-7655 short bus debate club at yahoo.com roll bitches later